This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. We're back bright and early Thursday morning. It is the Late Kick Extra Podcast. Happy to have you along. I'm Josh Pate. Got a lot, a lot, a lot to get to this morning. Three lots because one sometimes just won't do. As you know, this is a mailbag format. This is you ask it. This is I try and answer it as best I can. You can hit me at joshpate706 at gmail.com. And you can hit me on Twitter at Late Kick Josh. How are you, by the way? Probably what I should have led with. There's a whole lot going on. I don't know, as I said the other day, if your team may or may not be out of postseason contention of any any consequence, at least. And I don't know if maybe you've been drifting a little bit, but I would just strongly encourage you, stay at the table. There's so much going on right now. We're covering it as best we can at 247sports.com, and I'm hitting as much as I can on late kick, but... Really, you guys are doing a great job, too. It probably, in some cases, even better than I'm doing because I read some of the questions for the podcast this morning, and I thought to myself, huh, that's good. Why haven't I hit that already? I mean, there were some that I couldn't even get to that I answered personally, and I may end up talking about on Late Kick Live, which, by the way, airs on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. So subscribe there if you haven't already, and give us a five-star review on this here podcast if you haven't already. And I know when I ask for the five-star reviews, you guys understand that really just means I'm talking about Apple Podcasts. They don't let you do it elsewhere. But I'll tell you what Spotify does. At the end of the year, they put out your most listened to charts. And I wasn't ready for that this year. I know it's coming, but yet at the same time, we're busy. We're in the middle of a season. And so I didn't realize, oh, they're going to do it this week. And so if you're familiar with what I'm talking about, it's just them aggregating what you listen to the most. And it gives your top songs. It gives your top podcast you've listened to. And so the other day, all of a sudden, I started getting flooded with these screenshots of people taking pictures and saying, hey, look, I listen to your show more than any other show, or you finish number three, or you finish number two. And that was great. Oh, man, I, as I tweeted out, such a boost to the old self-esteem bone. Sometimes you need it the most, and it's the least likely to happen. There it is. And so I appreciate that. And I, I, I absolutely tweeted that out to get more screenshots, by the way, because I wanted even more boosts to the self-esteem, and you guys delivered. So thank you for those. And I'll finish the sentence that I started, uh, and I went down that side road. The five-star reviews, we're now at 872. As I sit here and look at the screen this morning, and it is Thursday, uh, what, December 3rd. Mom's birthday was yesterday. I remember that. And so um, thank you so much. Let's get to 1,000. That's the challenge. Let's get to 1,000. And now let's get into these questions because we got a lot to get to this morning. i got a conference call that i got to squeeze this in before. But it will not be a squeezed type show. We're going to dive in pretty deep to a number of things this morning. Okay, so I wanted to start with this. It's not necessarily one person's question because I think about three or four dozen of you asked some form of what's going to happen with Ohio State. And then also I wanted to throw Chad's question in here because he kind of said, I don't think Indiana is out. If Ohio State has more COVID cancellations that prevent them from playing in the Big Ten title game and Indiana wins against Wisconsin and Purdue, 
plus the Big Ten title? Is there a possibility the Hoosiers make the playoff? And so I wanted to hit all this. And you could really throw A&M in here too, but I'm going to hit a separate Texas A&M question in terms of the playoff a little bit later in the podcast. What's going to happen to Ohio State is a matter of some conjecture right now because we're, to be honest, sitting around waiting to see if they're going to hit the minimum baseline number of games as it stands now that's necessary. Now, if you are kind of you know, living your normal life and you haven't been paying attention to the day-to-day here, what's happening is basically the Big Ten fumbled the ball horribly trying to get into the season. That's really the backdrop with which this entire debacle should be viewed. The Big Ten wanted to go its own way. It's a great song by Fleetwood Mac. It's a horrible strategy when it comes to college football, schedule-making and decision-making, especially when really you're not too qualified to make those decisions, even if you are in a leadership position or positions. And so they uh, did not go the route of the SEC or ACC. They started late. They gave themselves no wiggle room, uh, unnecessarily so, by the way. So now you have one of their member institutions and one of them that fought the hardest to play the season, so hats off to Ohio State, having to suffer, potentially, at the hands of your poor decision-making. Now, if they are able, they being Ohio State, if they're able to play Michigan State Saturday, and looks like we're on track to do that, and then they're able to play, let's say, Michigan next week, and they can get into the Big Ten title game with that six-win minimum threshold met, all's well. I think they'll go to that game. I think they'll win. At that point, I think the college football playoff committee will have seen enough to put them in. My entire premise there is I think they, like most people, believe Ohio State, if the truth were known, is really one of the four best teams in the country. Even if they don't play as many games as everyone else, they believe that. They have believed that since the beginning of the season. I have believed that, for the record, since the beginning of the season. And I think a lot of people on the committee are looking for a reason. They, they're they begging to be given a reason to put the Buckeyes in. I don't think that's the wildest theory in the world. I don't think that's the most ludicrous mindset to have in the world. Now, I do understand the counter. I perfectly understand if you're listening to this right now and you know, you're know you yelling at your phone and saying, okay, but there have been plenty of times in the past where teams started 4-0 or 5-0 and ended up falling off a cliff. There have been plenty of times in the past where we thought highly of a team in the first month to month and a half of the season, and then all of a sudden they fell off a cliff. Like, how do we know? How could you know for sure that Ohio State wasn't going to fall off a cliff if they're not? Ha- if they don't have to be put through the test? I understand what you're saying. You make perfect sense. It's my only counter is uh, the age old "it is what it is" adage. I mean, that's just that's what it is this year. I'm not going to be able to give you a perfect solution. Okay, the closest we can come to perfect is let's just. As Christopher Walken told Rachel McAdams in Wedding Crashers, you have no idea what the future may bring. All you can do is use the information at hand to make the best decision possible. And the reason you know I didn't plan that is because I probably didn't get the exact quote right. But he's right. As Christopher Walken always was and is, he's right. That's the way it's going to have to be. Now, that's not the question at hand, though. I think most people assume if, if the Buckeyes are able to get to the Big Ten title game and win it, Most people assume they're in. What you guys are asking is, what if they don't? And it's my opinion that has kind of evolved in the last 24 or 48 hours. It's my opinion that's not going to be allowed to happen. I believe if they're not able to get one of these next two games in and they don't meet that minimum threshold, I just think the minimum threshold is going to be changed. I don't think there's any prayer. And Barry Alvarez, who is 
the current athletic director at Wisconsin yesterday kind of went on record and backed up this sentiment. I don't believe there's any prayer. The Big Ten is going to allow Ohio State to be left out of the college football playoff because of their incompetence and because of of their uh, rule structure that they put in place that was really written in pencil to begin with. And the good thing about writing something in pencil is, of course, you you can erase it anytime you want to. If you're holding the pencil, you can flip that thing upside down and you can erase it. This entire season's been drawn in pencil. Everyone's been flexible. The ACC just arbitrarily changed their year-end schedule. And then, my, and then uh, not Mike Slive, the late Mike Slive was the commissioner in the SEC. Greg Sankey's down here saying, wait a second, what, what are you guys doing? Like, you got your two best teams figured out. You're just going to shave games off the end of the year? And then people are looking at Greg Sankey saying, uh, you still going to make Alabama play Arkansas? You still going to make Florida play on December 12th? Because those guys aren't. And it's ridiculous. I mean, it's, look, she didn't have to do her chores. Do I have to do my chores? Everything's written in pencil this year. The Big Ten bylaws or, or by protocols or whatever, it's no different there. So what I believe is, if Ohio State ends up getting left out of the playoff, it's going to be because they lost a game. That's what I believe. I do not believe they're going to be left out at any point because someone looked at them and said, oh, look, they didn't get enough games in, so they couldn't play in the Big Ten title game. The Big Ten controls that aspect. And as long as they hold the control, they're going to make sure the Buckeyes get in. And they're going to make sure they get in by making sure they play in the Big Ten title game. And if that means at the last minute, removing that rule that says you got to have you must have played six games in order to qualify. That's what they're going to do. I fully believe that. I fully believe they will go to Indianapolis and they'll win the Big Ten title and they'll make the playoff. Now, is that right or wrong? You know, you can make an argument either way. Again, that's up to your interpretation. I'm going to leave that to you. My thought is this. If I were to look at the Big Ten and it was arguable who the best team up there is, I mean, if it were even remotely debatable who the best team up there is, I'd give a lot more pushback, but let's just be real right now. I mean, the only thing that was going to stand between Ohio State and winning that conference was going to be a technicality. And if that's all that we're talking about and we're going to favor them by three touchdowns over anyone they play in the Big Ten title game and it's crystal clear who the best team is, I, to be honest with you, I'm not going to push back a whole lot on that. And this is kind of an exception to the rule mentality given how I'd normally feel about competition and about being made to earn something. And I still feel that way kind of down deep in my core. But at the same time, again, let me say it again, 2020 protocol. So it, uh, let me say it again, is what it is. And uh, we'll get all the normal phrasing out of the way and just tell you, you're going to have to live with it. All right, next up this morning, Tennessee's back in action this week. And just in time for that, we got a Tennessee slash South Carolina question here. This is from Scott. Scott says, question for the show. Hypothetically, if you were a top coaching candidate and you had your choice to go to Tennessee or South Carolina, what would you choose? I know what the mainstream and obvious opinion would be, but I think it's closer than what some might think. Part of my reasoning or thought is that South Carolina, the pressure is much less there than it is at Tennessee. I know coaches are wired different, but if you win eight to 10 games at USC, you're a god. At Tennessee, it's expected that you win at least that many each season. Scott, I would choose Tennessee, uh, but I've got my own reasons for this. Because I, I have certainly have nothing against Carolina. In fact, so much so that many of you have taken to referring to me as Cocky Jr. in the comments section. And that goes all the way back to my days in Columbus. I have, I've, I don't know. I've just have always kind of had this strange, unexplainable affinity for Carolina. I think it's because I worked for an ownership group that was out of South Carolina. They were all South Carolina grads. So I was just always around 
South Carolina talk and whatnot. And they kind of, it always endeared me to them to root for South Carolina. And I'm not going to ever have accused myself of being a brown nose. However, it did help that I was around them during the height of the Spurrier years. And so the best period in Gamecock football was the time that I was being introduced to those folks. So, I mean, all I had to say was Cox by 30 Saturday and I got a promotion. That was essentially as easy as it was for me. So really, that's the only reason I'm here. I mean, if we're being honest with ourselves, I'm put it all on the table. Uh, South Carolina got me where I am today. Bless you, Steve Spurrier. Now, having said that, here's why I'm telling you my answer is Tennessee. I am about sick to death of people telling me Tennessee can't win. They cannot be a national championship program. They cannot be a tier one program. Can't be an elite program. I believe a lot of that is really just more recency bias, I guess you would call it, than actual reality. Here's why I believe Tennessee can be a perennial tier one, and they aren't for different reasons. But what you can do there is you can recruit, which people will stop me. They'll put their index finger over my mouth and go, shh, no, you can't. No, you can't because you know why? Tennessee doesn't have a huge crop of in-state talent. Okay, you're kind of right about that. I understand the point that you're making. There's a little more talent in Tennessee than you think, but it's also a weird state. So the majority of the talent would be in Central and then West Tennessee, which is much closer to like Ole Miss and Tuscaloosa than it is to Knoxville. It's kind of a weirdly shaped state. Like I'm in Nashville right now. It helps to be in Nashville. Like if Vanderbilt were a powerhouse, well, they're situated well in Tennessee to just take advantage of the whole state. Knoxville is like closer to the Atlantic Ocean than it is to Memphis. Please don't check that. Geographically, I think that's right. And if it's not, you understand the point I'm trying to make. So here's the other point. I am not a believer that state boundaries are limiting a good recruiter in recruiting in 2020. There's a lot of data out there. I'm not going to waste your time with it that would indicate to you overwhelmingly state boundaries have never mattered less in recruiting. Kids go away from home all the time now. It's not a big deal anymore the way it used to be kind of recently, to be honest with you. It's just not a big deal anymore. So what I believe in doing is with a program like Tennessee, I believe in drawing about a six-hour radius around the campus, and that's my recruiting territory. And then if I'm Jeremy Pruitt, for example, you know, I have an added feature that I'm big, you know, I can go into Mobile if I want to because I have an established rapport with the high school coaches really all up and down I-65 in Alabama. But draw the six-hour radius and look at where that gets you if you're Tennessee. Not only does it get you, of course, over to Nashville and, you know, I think it's close to Memphis. Just let's call it Tennessee, okay? You get down into Atlanta. You get into the Carolinas. You get up into Virginia. Like, you're in all these places that you need to recruit. You're in the northern half of Alabama. And so you're telling me, that you can't find a top seven, top eight caliber class per year in that circle? Of course you can. You got to be able to leverage it. You got to have something to sell. And if Tennessee is not able to sell it, it's not because the kids wouldn't come there if it was sellable. It's because their product's been bad. Secondly, what are you lacking other than that? Because I, I believe you can recruit perennially year in and year out very well there. Uh, very well to elite if you got the right guy. Uh, what if I put Nick Saban at Tennessee? That's my question. What if I put him there? Is it Was he all of a sudden falling off a cliff and struggling to hit the top 15 every year? Of course not. So it could be done. Kirby Smart at Tennessee would be killing it in recruiting. Of course it could be done. So then I move on and I ask, what else do they lack? Well, facilities? No, it's not facilities. Uh, don't, not only do they have a historic game day atmosphere, 
But the behind-the-scenes stuff, the stuff you don't necessarily see on TV all the time, it's state-of-the-art there. There's been recent upgrades. It's phenomenal. I've been up there very recently. they got great facilities at Tennessee. Is the financial buy-in not there? That's false. Of course it is. Is the fan passion not there? Are you crazy? Those people are still bought in. After the last decade, they're still bought in. Believe in Derek Dooley. They did. Crash and burn. Believe in Butch Jones. The man put a trash can on the sideline. They did. Crash and burn. They've been asked to invest over and over again, and they've still shown up every Saturday, and they're still there at every fundraising event, and they're still there caring as much as anyone on National Signing Day and everything in between. They're still there. Now they've been asked to invest again, and they've done it again. It's always there. The elements are there. Everything you need to win is there. You just hadn't had the right guy in the driver's seat. And that's really ultimately what it comes down to. You and I both know that. So is it going to be Jeremy Pruitt? It may be. It may not be. But if it's not Pruitt, well, the next guy would be me because that's the hypothetical. If I were the coach choosing, I'd want to go to Tennessee and you're asking me, so I'm giving you my answer. I'd want to go there just to prove that wrong. That's why I want to go there. So I, it was kind of a slanted answer, Scott. You probably asked the wrong person. You didn't get a true comparative analysis of the programs. But I've always had this. I've never said this before. I don't think I've ever said burr under my saddle. You know what? I watched Tombstone the other night. So I've always had this burr under my saddle about all these folks who just make these claims. Well, Tennessee can't be this and can't be that. It's like, what are you talking about? First off, they have been it. Like they've been there. It's not a question of, is it possible to win a national title there? They've done it. They've done it in my lifetime. They've done it. And so not only... Not only has that happened, I wouldn't have even needed to see them win a title to know they could do it. Uh, in 2008, for doing this podcast 12 years ago, and someone asks this question about Clemson or South Carolina, and I were to choose Clemson, if I were to tell you Clemson's capable of winning a national title, would you have told me, uh-uh, just because they haven't in this generation, like just because they haven't? Well, of course they were capable of it. They just needed the right guy. They got the right guy, and now they've won a couple of them. They played for another one, and they're rolling. Tennessee could be the exact. You're telling me Clemson's capable of doing something Tennessee's not. Really? That's what you're telling me. Okay. Well, we'll just agree to disagree there. Scott, I'm not yelling at you. I'm just yelling at the hypothetical jerk standing behind you sticking his tongue out at me. All right. Next up here, Stephen had a really good one. He said, do you collect memorabilia? I'm sort of new to that game. I just don't get why some things are valuable and some things aren't. Stephen, you read my mind. I've, I've never understood how value is attributed to things in the memorabilia world. Now, I'm not a big collector. I do have a couple of things. I told a story over the summer about uh, when I was at the 2017 national title game. That was the one that was the second and 26 one in Atlanta, Tua to Devontae Smith, a non-Heisman contender, Devontae Smith. I want to stress that. Devontae Smith is not a Heisman contender. No matter how great he is, you're never going to see his name in Heisman contention. Is that sarcastic? Of course it is. Is it dripping with vitriol for the entire Heisman process? Of course it is, but I digress. So that happens. Chaos ensues. Brian Dable was the offensive coordinator for Alabama at that time. And so uh, as, as I told the story in the summer, all the stuff that happens on the field after a walk-off national championship win happens on the field, it's like Joe Carter for the Blue Jays, but it's football instead. And so all the craziness is happening. And so uh, I was on the field for the post-game, well, everything post-game, and then as the trophy ceremony and the confetti is raining down as they're getting that set up, I looked down at the ground and I saw a laminated something. 
So I, ju- I was just picking stuff up. Really what I was looking for was newspapers because uh, my cousin always loves to get those commemorative newspapers they hand out. So I always try and grab him one if I can. And so I was looking for those. I saw a laminated sheet. I said, oh, I'll pick that up. Why not? If, if nothing else, I'll just help him clean the facility up. So I picked it up. Didn't even look at it at the time because I was in a hurry. And I put it in my bag and I went on about my business. Then after the game, it was like three hours later when I was, I think I was putting my laptop up. Maybe I can't remember what I was doing, but I opened the bag and I said, oh, oh, here's this laminated sheet. And I looked at it and it was Alabama's offensive play sheet that Dable, I guess, had dropped all the plays on there. I mean, you the color coded plays, it's, you know, it's everything categorized. It's crazy. You could spend hours reading this. And so I've got that. I told you I had a guy put a price on it one time out of fun, and it was an absurdly high number that I could never envision anyone paying, but that's beside the point because I'm not selling it. I got to get in a very hard time, I'll say, to sell that. That's probably my favorite and one of my only pieces of memorabilia. But another quick good one, you're talking about weird things that are valued by people. I was at the 20, which one was the first time? No, the second time Bama played Clemson was 2016. So I guess it was the year before that game. Me... And the chief meteorologist at the news station that I was working at at the time, Matt Wentz, who works in Cleveland now, maybe some of you Buckeye fans know who that is. Uh, he graduated from Ohio State, by the way. So we we go down to the national title game. And uh, don't ask me why he got to go with me. I, he just did. We, um, you know, it was a long story. It was a very interesting time at the station. So we go down there and he, I mean, he's a college football fan, but by no means a diehard fan. Uh, but he knows the game, and so he was interested, wanted to take in the atmosphere. So we're there. That's the one where Clemson won the game with one second to go. So there's more craziness, and you got the obviously the confetti that rains down after the game there too. So Wentz has some Ziploc bags with him. He says, you know what? Watch this. Now, I call myself the expert. I know everything about this game, and he's telling me how he's about to scoop up all this confetti in these Ziploc bags. And I said, okay they'll appreciate that. I mean, you look like a homeless dude out here. They'll appreciate that, but go for it. Get your bags. I'm not carrying them for you, but get your bags. So he gets like, I don't know, somewhere between five and 10 bags of purple and orange confetti. Takes them home. I don't hear anything else about it until a week later. I'm walking down the hall. He says, Hey, look at this. So I go into the weather center. He's got his computer pulled up and uh, I don't, my statute of limitations probably passed on this by now. I don't know if it's illegal or not. Anyway, he's got eBay pulled up where he has taken these bags of confetti and some programs that we got at the game because they give them to you for free. They just put a mountain of them out there. Grab as many as you want to, especially on the way out when no one else is buying them. And so he has coupled, he's, he's selling packages of confetti and game programs and Clemson fans are bidding on them. And it was like watching Dwight Schrute flip Andy Bernard's Xterra in the office. He gets a really good deal on it and then he flips it for profit, like $10,000 profit. Wentz was flipping confetti, but the difference is he paid free dollars and 50 cents for his confetti and he flipped it. And so I am dumbfounded looking at that computer screen and realizing people are paying for essentially garbage. Like this, this is confetti, this is paper, this is colored paper, but he got it off the field. There was still grass mixed in. I mean, you know, the dew had set in a little bit. There's still grass mixed in. It's very authentic. And so that memorabilia story has always stuck with me. And it's like you said here, Stephen, why do people put value on things they put value on? I don't know. But the bottom line is they do. And I learned it firsthand then if I didn't know it already. And we move on here. David said, do you think the success and the inevitable draft upgrades of guys like Devontae Smith and Najee Harris at Alabama and what they're experiencing this year will encourage more players 
at Alabama or any school for that matter, to stay through their senior year. David, I I don't know that these cases specifically will lead to that, but I do know this. I think Devontae Smith and Najee Harris will be used as prototypes, as case studies for any coach that's talking to a guy who's on the fence about coming back. Because you've got the insurance policy option out there, so it's not an all-risk, all-reward type deal. you got a little safety net under you. Both of those guys have those kinds of policies. But you're telling, you're telling a guy who is on the fence and who's being told maybe by family, maybe by agents out there who aren't supposed to be talking to him but are anyway, that they need to come out. And they, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And if you're trying to sell them on coming back and playing college football one more year, what do you have in your barrel? What do you have in your chamber? Well, this is it. Look at Devontae Smith. Look at Najee Harris. Maybe these guys were already fringe first-rounders, maybe early second-round type guys, but look at the difference between being drafted 33rd and being drafted 13th. And that is millions of dollars in gaps, signing bonus money, and you only get a chance to do that one time. And I think it's worth it, but it's also something that does not need to be taken lightly. Because you think about the mentality, if you've ever looked at Devontae Smith, like the way he goes about his business, the way Najee Harris goes about his business, that's not normal. It's atypical to be wired like that. So if you're not wired like that, and maybe you got a chance to leave just based on raw talent alone after your third year there, maybe you need to go. But if you are wired like that, and you understand you know, you're making a 40-year decision instead of a four-year decision, which is ironically what they'll probably tell you on the recruiting trail too, it, yeah, it, it makes financial sense, you, but you better be, you can't come back and be wishy-washy about it. You better come back full steam ahead, going 115% every day, or else Najee Harris and Devontae Smith are not the best examples to use. They're not the best comparisons, because if you're not wired like them, what they did is irrelevant to what you'll end up doing. Bryce is next up. He said, how does a team like Pitt go from slightly above average to a 10-win team? Back in 2016, at the end of the season, it seemed like we were on the right path. We got big wins over Clemson and Penn State. The next year, we did okay at best. Then we managed to make it to the ACC title game in 2018. What is needed to make the jump to a 10-win team? Now, Bryce, it's an important distinction that you didn't make, but I'm going to ask people to make in their minds as you're listening. Are we talking about being a team that can win 10 games in a season, or are we talking about a 10-win program? If you're talking about a 10-win program, that ain't Pitt, and it ain't 98% of the sport. I mean, you're talking about 10 wins on average per year. There are only a couple of three, maybe four programs doing that and capable of doing that. That's just very, very lofty. And sometimes, not, I'm not dunking on you uh, it's, as much as I'm just making a general statement here. I don't think people realize what they're saying when you, when you, when you call a program a 10-win program. Man, you're talking about cruising at an altitude where your baseline expectation is double-digit wins per year. Look at who's doing that right now. Not very many. I'm not talking about a COVID year, but a general year. Winning 10 games or more per year on average certainly means you've got championships mixed in there. I mean, you've got every single year you either being in the conference title game or right there on the precipice of being in the conference title game. And that's just hard to do for Pitt or anyone else. So I don't think Pitt... I don't think it's a reasonable expectation to expect them to fly at double-digit win-per-year altitude, that being program. But can you do it as a team? Yes, certainly you can do it. What they have to do is they have to have the spikier mentality, as I've always called it. And what that is basically is instead of 
you know, breaking your back trying to be there every year and it's not realistic, understand it's possible that we could build to that. And so circle a year, spike year, every two to three years, what is realistic is for Pitt to recruit and develop and then sprinkle off the transfer market and build around a quarterback that is going to spike in his junior or senior year. And you've got a young offensive line that is going to coincide with that. And they're going to have a ton of seasoning and experience there, junior or senior years. And then you're going to fill the holes you need to with some freshman or young talent. And then maybe sprinkle in a big-time transfer or two that just wants to get closer to home. It's a unique situation. And you're building. Like you're sitting here right now in 2020, and if you were to apply this mentality, yeah, you want to win every year. Yeah, you're trying to win every game. But if you're doing your overall overarching big picture look at your program, you're knowing all the while. 2022 is going to be that year now. Now, we're going to have some growing pains this year. We'll have an outside shot next year at some games. We'll be able to do some things. But 2022, that's going to be the year for us. And that's how I think you have to do it at Pitt and a number of programs that are comparable to Pitt. All right, I've actually got uh, kind of quasi-complaints. It's been in fun and good nature, but I've had some complaints about how I've been teasing you about the ad breaks. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tell you ahead of time. Here we go. We're about to dive into a quick ad break. And then when we're coming out, you're welcome for this in advance. And when we're coming out, I'm going to talk about Florida and a three and a two and a one. Take it away. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. All right, here we go. We're back now. Casey asks, I got a question about Florida football. This season has been really exciting as a Florida fan. We beat Georgia. We got over the hump. That's huge. This week, though, I've had this bugging thought that we're a little bit ahead of schedule. Casey, what are you doing? He continues, I'm a bit afraid that if we don't upset Bama in the SEC title game and take advantage of the momentum, we may have a crash like LSU has had. What do you think is the big key for Florida moving forward to make that jump into staying in that tier one level, well, Casey, LSU is just an example I don't like using a lot because everything about that team was extreme. Everything, even on the fringes, every detail about that program last year is totally atypical and is very hard to use as a comparison for any other program. Having said that, I get the general sense and general uh, spirit, rather, of your question. To avoid that, what you have to do is maintain consistency at quarterback and head coach. That helps. That takes you 90% of the way. That's not to mean that you have to keep the same quarterback. This is college football. But you have to maintain that kind of level of play. And you have to do what Kyle Trask is doing this year. And then you have to use it. See, last year, Joe Burrow did what he did. But then do you go out on the recruiting trail and sell it and then bring in elite talent? Clemson did this beautifully when they had Deshaun Watson come in and turn that program upside down. Not only did they win, but then they used Deshaun Watson to go out and get guys like Trevor Lawrence and using Trevor Lawrence to go out and get guys like DJ Uyangalale. Well, you got to use Kyle Trask and you got to go out there and you got to land game changing quarterbacks. Because once you start that snowball down the hill, as we've seen with Clemson, it can pick up speed. Alabama, it can pick up speed very, very quickly. But you got to start it. You've started it. You've done the hard part. That's what you got to do next. And then the other thing 
is they got to start winning some head-to-head recruiting battles against Georgia. They got a shot. They got a couple of shots here coming up. Uh, we got early signing date a couple of weeks away, and we're preparing for that behind the scenes here. So get ready for that. It's on the 16th. I think we're going to be on air an absurd amount of time. that you, you won't be able to miss us, I can assure you. So that's what you have to do. There are just a lot of things that have to be done consistently at a high level to where you don't have these wild spikes in record year to year. Next up is Isaac, who had a two-parter. He said, I know bias exists in college football, but some of that is earned like the SEC. Do you think unearned bias exists in college football? Yes, I do, Isaac. However, I'm not going to attribute it to any one team or any one conference, let's say, or maybe even any one player. I mean, there's quarterback bias at the Heisman, and we understand that, but I don't talk Heisman a whole lot, and I don't really think you're asking about that. Here's where the real unearned bias is. I call it the default setting, and it comes from preview magazine season. The college football offseason is long. It's tenuous. I mean, you got to go the whole summer, and that's what you're looking forward to. Two things. That first afternoon where it feels dry and a little bit crisper outside, you know, falls on the way. And that coincides with football season. And that's what you're looking forward to when it's 103 degrees at 1145 AM down in South Georgia in the middle of July. You're looking forward to that. But then also you have nothing to do, but listen and read and talk about your college football team or teams. And you develop these ideas. And you develop a default setting of what you think about teams or conferences, which is great, and that's fine. But sometimes folks get married to them. And in the college football media world, it's no different. Folks get married to their preseason ideas of what the college football world is that given year. And they won't come off of it, even as evidence overwhelmingly against that default setting starts to pile up. And so that's where the unearned bias is. You're going to give a lot of benefit of the doubt to a team just because of what you believed about them. But the thing about it is you may have just overrated a team. And you'll talk about how they got upset in week one. Maybe they didn't get upset at all. Maybe it was unrealistic to ever think that they should have beaten Team B. Maybe Team A is just not all that great. You know, I remember when LSU went to Wisconsin. It was a couple of years back now to open the season. I mean, I was convinced they were going to beat Wisconsin. And they didn't. And so I looked at it and I said, man, how in the world Did Wisconsin pull this upset? Well, maybe LSU just wasn't the caliber of team that I thought they were. And that turned out to be reality. Wisconsin was pretty good too that year, by the way. A second question from Isaac. Assuming they went out, do you see the playoff picture for Texas A&M still able to take shape? Isaac, my answer is yes, but it's a longer shot if I'm right about Ohio State. Because if I'm right about Ohio State and they went out and the Big Ten finds a way to put them in the Big Ten title game, and they win a conference title, and they're going to be favored huge in all those games. So that's not a bold assumption. Going to be tough unless some craziness happens elsewhere. And I don't know what that craziness would be, to be honest with you, that would have to happen elsewhere to get Texas A&M in there. So I think it's a long shot. But listen, they can't worry about that. They've got a game where they're a seven-point favorite against Auburn Saturday. Like it's, It's going to suck if, for them at least, if all of this is talked about and it's rendered moot because they get upset by Auburn and still haven't beaten Gus Malzahn under Jimbo Fisher. Like that, that would be the shame. Xavier said, do you think the problem this season with Tennessee is coaching or player related or even potentially people behind the scenes? Xavier, I, maybe a little bit of everything. I don't know if it's a behind the scenes problem. I, I like I've told you with COVID, I think it has disproportionately impacted teams, even though everyone has dealt with it from a, a blanket perspective. 
I just think that they weren't ready yet this year anyway. The quarterback situation was going to be untenable at best this year, COVID or not. And so if you're if you're suspect at quarterback, you're going to be suspect, period. And I know that sounds so simplistic, but yet it's reality. And they haven't lit the world on fire, obviously, at other positions either. They've they, like many others, have had some injuries and had some COVID-related situations where guys can't practice, but really they're just not good enough yet. And so I don't know, even even if you have great folks behind the scenes and even if you have great coaches, if you're just not good enough yet, you're not good enough yet. That's the problem with Tennessee. They're not good enough yet. How do you get good enough? Does it require changes in the coaching world? Well, I wouldn't go that far yet. I know some people have, but we'll see about that. But I got a lot to get to later tonight that's kind of along those lines. So I highly encourage you to Check out Late Kick Live tonight on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. Really good podcast this morning. A quick reminder, subscribe to that YouTube channel and give us a five-star review on this podcast if you haven't already. And thank you guys so much again for listening to the Late Kick Extra podcast. I am Josh Pate. Have yourselves a great weekend if I don't talk to you again between now and next week. And there's no excuse for that because I should see you tonight. So either way, take care, have a great day, and God bless. God bless.